Lord, and let's pray before we look at His Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You and we praise You again for all You've given us, and we thank You for Your Word, that it is the living, breathing Word of God, that it's not an old, antiquated book like others would study, not books written by men, but, Lord, books inspired and written by the Spirit through the hands of men. And we thank You, Lord, that it desires to minister to our hearts today. So I pray, Lord, that each one of us We'll just be prepared and receptive to what you want to minister to us, Father, from your word. Lord, we're desperate for you. Lord, may you be our teacher. May man decrease that your spirit would increase, that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Now, by the way, we're going to pick up in verse 28 where we left off last week. Now, by the way of review, we looked, last week we looked at the title of the message was, who's on, was who, who Arrested Who? And today we're going to look at who's on trial. Okay, because we're going to move from the arrest of Jesus to now the trial of Jesus Christ. And as we come to this point in chapter 18, just real quickly, not to belabor it, but this is the last hours of Jesus' life. And it began in chapter 13, those of you who've been here the last five or six weeks, when Jesus began His upper room discourse, when He came in and washed the disciples' feet. And he began to prepare them for the fact that he was going away. He told them very clearly, I'm going away and where I go you cannot come. And he was preparing their hearts so that when he went away, they would be ready for it. He then told them that one of them would betray him. He said that another one of them would deny him. Then when you get to chapter 14, they were in fear and in trembling because they had heard he was going away. And Jesus gave them several assurances, the main one of which is he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And where I go, you're going to come again, and you're going to see me. I'm going to receive you unto myself. He also told them that He's the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by Him. Jesus Christ is the only path to heaven. Amen? There is no other way, there is no other truth, there is no other hope, there is no other life. It's Jesus Christ. We got to chapter 15, and He began to tell them that they needed to abide in Him. He said, I am the vine, and you are the branches. He that abides in me bears much fruit. I love, again, I've, I've quoted Rawl many times, Pastor Rawl, he's one of my favorite teachers in Southern California, and he says, you know, man, if you're not abiding, you're not going. And it's true, if we're not abiding in the vine, if we're not grafted into Jesus, if we don't have a relationship with Him, we will not enter into heaven. Because we cannot get there by our own good works, and we can produce no good works apart from the Savior. He gets to chapter 16, and he begins to encourage them to have peace in the midst of the persecution that was to come, because he said, you know what, guys, when I leave, they're going to throw you out of the synagogue. And they're going to want to arrest you, and they're going to want to kill you. But he said, you know what, be of good cheer, for I've overcome the world. And he encourages them to let them know that it was coming, that the Holy Spirit would come and dwell within them, and Jesus would intercede on their behalf. And then two weeks ago, we looked at the greatest prayer ever prayed in John 17. And I love that Jesus prayed for himself that, the cup, that he would be able to endure the cross that was before him because even though he was 100% God, he was also 100% man. And he was going to take on, as we're going to see next week, the crucifixion and the most brutal, brutal, torturous death ever. So he prayed for that, but then he also prayed for his disciples. But the end of the prayer I really love is he prayed for you and he prayed for me. Isn't it awesome to think that 2,000 years ago Jesus was praying for you? And he's praying that we'd be unified and praying that we would see his glory and we would glorify him on earth. And what's awesome is that that's what Jesus is doing right now. He's interceding on your behalf. And then last week we looked at who arrested who. And what a great chapter, first half of the chapter. And just real quickly again, as Jesus is now, his Bible says in Isaiah, he set his, flint, his face like flint toward the cross. 
He had prepared the disciples, and now he was going to be crucified. And he crossed over the brook Kidron, and those of you who go to Israel with us in March will walk these very steps. He brought, walked over the brook Kidron and up the Mount of Olives into the Garden of Gethsemane. And we talked about the fact that when he walked over the brook, this was Passover time. And the scholars say that there was an, an estimated number of about 250,000 uh, lambs that were sacrificed at Passover. And all of the blood of the lambs would pour down into the brook Kidron and mix with the water. So when Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, was walking over the brook Kidron on his way to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he had a divine appointment where he was going to be arrested, there was blood flowing through the brook. It's not by chance that the Lamb of God walked over the, bloods of the, the blood of the lambs, because he was going to shed the ultimate blood of the Lamb not many hours from then. We then saw that he went to the Garden of Gethsemane, which means oil press. And it was there that he suffered and he cried out to the Father and he, he said, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. But he was willing to suffer out of his love for us. And we talked about who arrested whom because remember what happened, that 600 soldiers came. And as they came, they were carrying torches and lanterns and weapons to arrest God. Comedy, right? And here comes with them Judas. And Judas was going to come and betray the, the Savior by kissing him on the cheek. But when they said, who were you looking for? Jesus stepped forward. He didn't hide. He saw the torches coming. He was up on a mountainside. He looked down. The torches were coming. He went, they didn't sneak up on Jesus. He couldn't have anyway. He's Almighty God. He knows everything. But as the torches came up and they got near to him, this crowd was around him. And he said, whom are you seeking? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am. And what happened? They all fell flat on their backs. Can you imagine 600 soldiers, their armor flying torches being tossed, laying flat on their back. Jesus, being God, could have walked away. He could have said, I'm God. He, said, he could have said, I am, and you're not, and turned them all into rocks, right? He could have done it. But he's God, and we see that he was totally in control, that he's totally sovereign, and he said, I am. You know, he said before Abraham was, I am, proving that he is God. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's the same name that was given of God in the burning bush, proving once again that Jesus Christ alone is God. And so we get to the chapter, the end of that text there, and, and Jesus then is brought before Annas, and, and Annas begins to question him. And then Caiaphas begins to question him. And they start to mock the Lord, and they drag him away. And we know that at that point is when Peter denied the Lord. Peter reached out at first and was really brave, and he lopped off the ear of Malchus. And I love the fact that Jesus reaches down. After saying, I am, and they all fall straight on their backs, Jesus bends down and puts a guy's ear back on his head. I'm thinking it's time to repent right about now. Amen? But instead, these guys continue and grab the Lord and drag him away. And then we see Peter, Mr. Bold, Mr. Ready, Fire, Aim, Mr. Out of Control Peter, Mr. Really Brave Peter, begins to, to weaken and whimper when a little girl says to him, aren't you one of his followers? Remember that Peter was where? He was warming himself at the enemy's fire. Remember that? And we hang out with the world, we're going to become like the world. And we're going to be afraid to make a stand for God. And then the third time Peter denied him, he looked across that courtyard as Jesus was being brought out, being on his way to being taken to Pilate. And as he's being brought out, he looks across that courtyard and it says, the eyes of Peter met the eyes of our Savior. And what's interesting about that is, can you imagine... Peter, how broken his heart must have been. The rooster crows. He's denied the Savior three times. He, go away, he goes away. He weeps bitterly. 
And as I said last week, I love later, we see the grace of our Savior. When Jesus rose from the dead and he appeared to the women, he said, go tell my disciples, and especially Peter, that I've risen. Our God is a God of grace. Amen? And even when we've blown it, can you imagine those words coming to Peter? So we pick up now as he's had this public, or this, this religious trial that was a joke, and now they're bringing him to a public trial before a man by the name of Pontius Pilate. So let's look beginning in verse 28. And again, we're going to see that just as he was in control at his arrest, he's in control during this entire time of his trial. Jesus is not at the whims of man. He's God. He's faithful. And as we're going to see who's on trial, we're going to see Jesus' arraignment before Pilate, as Pilate attempts initially just to remain neutral. We're going to see the Jews choose Barabbas over Jesus. We're going to see Pilate then deliver the Lord to be scourged, hoping to find pity for him and to please men at the same time. And then finally, we're going to see Pilate deliver Jesus to be crucified as he bows to the peer pressure of men. So let's begin at looking at his arraignment before Pilate. Look at verse 28. And they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium, and it was early morning. But they themselves did not go into the praetorium, lest they should be defiled but that they might eat the Passover. So they bring Jesus before Pilate. Now Pontius Pilate, quite often, if you see in movies and stuff, they portray this guy like some innocent bystander. Let me just tell you right now that Pilate was a vicious and a vile and a brutal man. That Pilate was a man who was in trouble with Rome. He'd already blown it several times. He was on his last leg. If he, blew, if he was gonna, made one more mistake, there was a good chance he would no longer be governor. He would lose his position. But he was a man who earlier, we see, you see it in Luke 13, where the people are worshiping and Pilate made a command that they'd slaughter the Jews as they worshiped. This was not some innocent bystander. This was not just some guy that had nothing to do with it. But now Jesus is being brought before this Pontius Pilate, this, this brutal and vile man. And we see as they bring him before Pilate that we first see the religious leaders don't want to walk into the praetorium. Now praetorium is a hall of judgment. And these Jewish leaders didn't want to set forth on Gentile ground because then they would be defiled. Man, isn't it amazing that here the lamb, the perfect Lamb of God is right in front of them and they don't want to step on Gentile pavement because they'll miss out on going to the Passover. Now the Passover is a picture of who? It's Jesus. We talked about this a few weeks ago. They took the hyssop branch and they took the blood and they put it on both sides. And they, they didn't just shed the blood, they had to apply the blood. Just as the, the blood of the cross is sufficient to, to save us all, but it must be applied to our lives. And we see here that picture of the cross, and that's what Passover was. Blood of the Lamb in the shape of a cross. And here these guys are totally missing it, not wanting to step on Gentile pavement because then they'll be defiled and they can't go observe their religious rituals when right in front of them is the truth. Right in front of them is the Lamb of God. You know what? May, I want to encourage us all. May we not miss the Savior because of religion. Amen? May we not be so caught up in the rules and the rituals and the things that we do just in a mundane, habitual way that we miss the Savior who is right in front of us who wants to have that intimate, personal relationship with you and me. And so here these guys are. They say, oh, we can't step. And just as it's, Jesus had said to him earlier, you guys strain at a gnat and you swallow a camel. And that was the smallest of all the defiled animals. The camel was the largest. These guys are straining at a gnat. Well, we can't step on Gentile ground, but we can kill an innocent man. Amazing when you look at these guys. Verse 29. Pilate then went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? 
Now they wouldn't go in, so Pilate came out to them. He succumbed to their tradition so that they would not defile themselves. And the Jews make two accusations or say two things about the Lord. They have no accusations. They answered and said to him, verse 30, If he were an evildoer, were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. Then Pilate said to him, You take him and judge him according to your law. Therefore the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. They first insinuate that Jesus had done something wrong, but they had nothing to accuse him of, so all they could say was, Well, if he wasn't guilty, we wouldn't have brought him here. That wouldn't go over very well in a court of law. What did he do? Well, if he wasn't guilty, he wouldn't, even be in cha- he wouldn't be here to begin with. And that's kind of their accusation when it comes to our Savior. But as we all know, Jesus is perfect, he's holy, he's sinless, he had done nothing wrong. And so they bring him before and they make their agenda known really quick. They say, we brought him to you because we can't kill him. The Jews had lost their right to capital punishment in 30 AD, though they still would execute people on occasion. But when they executed them, how did they execute most people? What did they do? They stoned them. And we know that the Bible says in Isaiah and in Psalms and in other places, hundreds of years before Jesus came, that the Messiah would die through crucifixion. That he would be lifted up. It didn't say he would be stoned. And so in fulfillment of Scripture, they have to bring him to Pilate, that Pilate will allow him to go to the cross. Because that was God's perfect plan. Who's on trial? Who's in control? God is. Always is. He's faithful. So they skirt the issue. They have no accusation. They bring him. And then Pilate said to them, you take him and judge him. Again, well, we can't because we want to kill him. They were accountable to Roman law, and they wanted the Romans to do their dirty work. Verse 32. That the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. Back in Matthew, don't turn there. Let me just read it to you real quick. It says in verse 18 and 19, this is Jesus speaking. He says, Behold, we are going, he's speaking to his apostles, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes. They will condemn him to death, deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify, and the third day he will rise again. Did Jesus make it really clear what was going to happen to him? They're going to deliver me. I'm going to go to the Jews. I'm going to go to the chief priest. Then they're going to take me to the Gentiles. Then they're going to scourge me. Then they're going to mock me. And then they're going to crucify me. And sadly, the apostles weren't listening because when it, when it all happens, they run scared. But we see here that this is all according to God's plan. Who's on trial? Man is. Pilate is. The crowd is. Not the Lord because he is sinless and he is perfect. Had they punished him the way they wanted to, it would not have followed in with what the Word of God says. Again, more evidence of the prophetic truth of God's Word. Verse 33. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Now it's interesting that there were several things, accusations being made about Christ. But one of them was that he proclaimed himself to be a king. And do you notice which one that the governor is worried about? He says to him, So what did he say? He said he's a king? Wait a minute, I'm the governor. And he already knows that he's about to lose his gig the next time he blows it. So he calls Jesus in and he's not worried about, are you the Messiah? He's not worried about, did you raise people from the dead? He's not worried about the fact that he healed the lepers and the lame and the blind. All he wants to know is, are you really a king? It's Passover time. The the Jews have crowded into Jerusalem. Are you going to try to overthrow the government? What's your program? All he cares about, Pilate, is himself. 
And all he's worried about is any threat that Jesus might be to him. They might have said, you know, when he came in, they were singing, save now, we pray you. Hosanna, Hosanna. You know what? When he came in, that's what happened. You better watch out, Pilate. He's going to take over and you're going to get thrown out into the street. And so Pilate brings the Lord in and says, are you a king of the Jews? And Jesus answered and said, are you speaking for yourself about this? Or did others tell you this concerning me? Jesus is looking for Pilate's motive. Do you really want to know who I am? Or are you just repeating what you've heard? It's not Jesus on trial. It's Pilate. Pilate is is sitting face to face with the Son of the living God. And like all men, Pilate was going to have to make a decision about Jesus Christ. And Jesus is asking him because any man who truly comes seeking the Lord, he will reveal himself to. Nobody is seeking God and not finding Him. Nobody is truly wanting to know who the Lord is and is left in the dark. Anybody who truly wants to know God, will, God will open their eyes to Him. What happened when Nicodemus came? The Lord saw the sincerity of Nicodemus' heart and He said, you must be born again. Now, here, He looks at Pilate's heart and He asks him, why are you asking me this question? Do you really want to know who I am? And Pilate is really just wanting to make sure that no one's going to steal his, his job. Verse 35, Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation, the chief priests, have delivered you to me. What have you done? He spoke this with a tone of disgust. Am I a Jew? Why, why are you asking me if I care about you, if I want to know what you're doing? I'm not a Jew. I, I, don't, I don't need to know about who you are. Your own people brought you to me. Verse 36, Jesus answered and said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight, so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Jesus confesses that, yes, he is a king, but he's not the king of this world. Amen? His kingdom is way greater than anything this world has to offer. If he wanted to be king of this world, he could be king of this world in a nanosecond. He's God. He could wipe out everybody with a word. He could wipe out the greatest army just by thinking a thought. But his desire was not to come and rule and reign in the temporary, but to rule and reign in the eternal. Amen? Aren't you glad we don't serve a God that gives you 30 or 40 good years on earth and then you spend eternity separated from God? The good news is, if you know Jesus Christ, you have joy here and now, you experience eternal life starting right now, and then you get heaven on top of everything else. Amen? That's the God that we serve. And he said, look, I'm not fighting for this kingdom. Hey, you know what? You're worried about your kingdom? Keep it. You can have it. I'm not interested. That's not why I came. I came to redeem the world, not to rule on it. And so it was a spiritual kingdom. And his kingdom, again, is not of this world, and neither should ours be. Worldly kingdoms rule with worldly swords, and Jesus ruled with the sword of the Spirit, the sword of truth. And you know what? It's not his world, and it shouldn't be ours either. Amen? We shouldn't be hanging so tight to this that we miss out on the eternal. God has a wonderful plan and wants to use this mildly. Verse 37. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? And Jesus said, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of of the truth hears my voice. Jesus was born. He became flesh. He came into the world. Now, Jesus Christ always has been. Amen? He's firstborn over creation. 
He's not the firstborn of creation, as the Jehovah's Witnesses might tell you, or somebody else. He always has been, he always will be, he's God. He created everything. But then he became flesh and he came to earth because only holy God, only a perfect holy sacrifice can restore sinful man back to a holy God. There must be a holy Savior. And none of us could do it. Amen? None of us could be the Savior because we're all sinners in need of a Savior. And so we see here, that's why Jesus came. And as He came, He came again. And He tells them very clearly, I have come into the world that I may bear witness to the truth. Who's the truth? It's Jesus. He revealed the truth about the Father, the truth about the Spirit, the truth about man, the truth about sin, the truth about salvation. Verse 38, Pilate said to him, What is truth? Is that a question that's still bouncing around today? People still looking for truth? They think the truth is fulfilling the lust of the flesh. Right? The truth is, if I just had a little more money in the bank, then I would be happy. If I could just find the right girl or right guy, if I could just have this, if I could just get that promotion at work, if my house had an extra bedroom, I mean, if I could just get this, right? And we always think that there's just one more thing that the world has to offer, then that will bring us that peace and that joy we've always been looking for. But the reality is that we've all got a God-shaped vacuum. And it can only be filled by Him. You can't fill it with money. You can't fill it with relationships. You can't fill it with drugs or alcohol or anything else. You put all that stuff in, your flesh will never be satisfied. Jesus said, I came to bring truth. And here we see Him say, what is truth? Now, if He had been asking that with sincerity, Jesus would have told Him. But He's mocking Him. What is truth? You ever witnessed somebody that's done that to you? Hey, bro, I'm telling you the truth. Oh, what kind of truth is that? There can be no absolute truth. How can there not be an absolute truth? That's what I'm trying to figure out. How can there be 700 different truths that all are are right at the same time? It's impossible. There can only be one truth, and the truth is Jesus. Amen? He's the way and the truth and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by Him. And so we see here that He asked in a mocking way, and when He had said this, He went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in Him at all. He could find no fault in Jesus because there was no fault in Jesus. And he was bold enough initially to go out and say, look, I find no fault in this man. Now, when you look in Luke and in the other Gospels, at that point he finds out that Jesus is from Galilee. And between verses 38 and 39, he sends Jesus to Herod. Because he doesn't want to have to make a decision about Jesus. He's like, you know what, I find no fault in this guy. You're putting me in a corner. I have to please men because if I don't, I'm going to lose my governorship. You're going to run and tell Caesar that I'm not being a good governor. I've already blown it so many times. But this guy hasn't done anything wrong. I don't want to shed innocent blood. He's from Galilee. Oh, Herod's here for Passover. Send him to Herod. So they take Jesus over to Herod, and he doesn't answer Herod, and Herod finds no fault in him, and Herod sends him back. And I love this because what it tells me is that all of us will have to make a decision about Jesus. Amen? He tried to pass the buck. He tried to say, oh, I don't want to make a decision. I'm just going to step out of the way. You know, let Herod do it. And ultimately, every one of us will have to make a decision about Jesus. Who is he? Who is he to you? Not who he was to your grandma. Who is he to you? Do you have a personal, intimate relationship with him? And that's where it all comes down to. And so he comes back. And now he's going to try to appease the people. At the same time, he's going to try to have them choose to let Jesus get away and still try to look like he's being the governor. Look at verse 39 and 40. 
But you have a custom that I should release someone to you at Passover. Do you therefore want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Now, he brings out to the people at this Passover tradition, which every time at Passover they would release a prisoner to commemorate the fact that they were released out of bondage in Egypt. And so he brings Jesus out and says, well, i got to get out of this somehow. I don't want to have this guy killed because he hasn't done anything wrong. I don't want to shed innocent blood. But at the same time, i got to please these people. Well, I know what I'll do. I'll bring out two, because you have to bring out two to choose from. I'll bring out Jesus, and then I'll find the most rotten, dirty, vile guy in the world, and I'll bring him out with him. I'll bring out a robber and a murderer, a guy that there will no way that they will want to have come back out into society. A guy that they'll be scared to death of, and compared to Jesus, who's done nothing, who's already been beaten and mocked, they're going to have to choose Jesus. So they bring him out, and now the crowd has a choice to make. And look at verse 40. Then they all cried again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Now it's interesting. They cried out, for Barabbas. Barabbas was a robber, a murderer, a despicable man. So at 6 a.m., he brings him out before them early in the morning, figuring again they would obviously pick the Lord. Jesus had healed the lame. He had raised the dead. He had done nothing but love people and minister to people. He turned. He had fed the 5,000. He had done incredible miracles. He had walked on water. And he got a, another guy over here who's a robber and a murderer and is evil and vile and wicked. And who do the people pick? Give us the wicked guy. We don't want Jesus. Give us the wicked guy. And this reminds me in 1 Samuel where they chose Saul to be king over God. They said, to you know, you have a king. Oh, we want a king like everybody else has. Give us the big yoked guy. Give us Saul. We want to follow him. Well, if you follow him, he's going to take away your family. He's going to, he's going to bring you into harm. Oh, it's okay. We want him anyway. And the same thing happens here. Just as they rejected the father in choosing Saul, they're rejecting the son and choosing Barabbas. But what's interesting to me, and what I see most here, is that Jesus, an innocent, perfect, holy God, and a perfect, holy man, is going to take the place of an evil and a wicked and a vile man going to the cross in his spot. Who's Barabbas a picture of? Us. Are we evil? Oh, well, I don't know, Pastor Day, I'm, I'm evil. That's a pretty rough word. <laughs> Let me help you out. Yes, you are. <laughs> the Bible says the thoughts of man are evil and perverse above all things. And here's the reality that apart from Christ in, in us dwelleth no good thing, the Bible says. And we desire, our flesh desires evil. That's its desire at all times. And that was Barabbas. And Barabbas is a picture of us. We were deserving of the cross. We were deserving of death. We were deserving of separation. And Jesus, innocent, perfect, and holy, took Barabbas' place just as he took our place on the cross. Who's on trial? Pilate tries to remain neutral, but he can't. Verse 9, chapter 19. So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. Now these are words you could just read over really quickly, but we're not going to because the word scourge there is one of the most brutal things that could ever happen to a human being. We've talked about this before. It's brutal. It was barbaric. It, rival, it was rivaled only by crucifixion. When they scourged somebody, they would take them and they would tie their hands and their feet around a post so they were totally defenseless. They could not move. Then they would take a 
cat of nine tails and tie knots in the leather, in the leather whips. And then they would put bone and metal and glass on, on, all over it. And they would take it from a, a great distance and they would bring it out. And as it latched onto the skin of the defenseless person being scourged, is it would grab in that bone and that metal, would grab into the flesh. And then when they would pull back, it would just bring chunks of flesh with it at, with every lash. Now we know that there were several throngs on that, on that whip. And every one of them had several pieces. And we know that our Savior was, la- was beaten 40 lashes minus one. And what's amazing is many men, by eighth or ninth lash, their organs were already exposed. Their body was ripped away completely. By the tenth and fifteenth, they were just laying there in a bloody pulp and they continued to be whipped. That's what happened to our Savior. Why? What did He do? He came to love sinful man. He came to die that we might have eternal life. And they beat Him because of my sin and because of yours. That's the God we serve. Amen? He loves us so much, he'd rather die than live without you. That's the God you serve. And sometimes I think about him being beaten, and it just brings me to tears. Because I think, he did that for me? I know every vile thing I've ever done, and he did that for me. What a great God we serve. And they whipped him, and they scourged him. And after scourging, many men would die. They wouldn't make it. But after that, they not only scourged our Savior, but then this Innocent, our innocent God. And it tells us in Isaiah that he would be scourged because it says in Isaiah 53 that by his stripes we are healed. So pointing at Jesus, prophetic, a fulfillment of prophecy that he would be beaten. But look what it says in verse 2. And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. We've talked about this before. Thorns came into existence where? In the garden after people did what? Sinned. There were no thorns and no thistles in the, in the Garden of Eden until Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis chapter 3. Thorns are a type or a picture of sin. So what did they place on the head of our Savior? A crown of sin. The crown of sin was... Now remember, his body's ripped open. He's bleeding everywhere. He's laying bare. And then they take long thorns and drive them into the head of our Savior, who again has done nothing wrong. How many of you ever cut your head before? Do you bleed or what? Your head bleeds like no other place on your body. Can you imagine the amount of blood flowing from our Savior when they took this crown of thorns and jammed it into his head as he was having even a hard time standing up after the scourging he's taken? Then to mock him, look what it says, they put a purple robe on him. Now a robe was a sign of royalty, but they were doing this in a mocking way. But you need to understand that when they put that robe on our Savior's open flesh, that it stuck to His body. If you've ever had a wound before and you put cloth on it and then you pull it away, what happens? It reopens all the wounds. And with our Savior, they jam that crown of thorns and then they put this purple robe on Him. And from the other text, it says they gave Him a little weak staff and put it in His hand and they mocked Him and said, Oh, the King of the Jews. And they laughed at Him. Why did He endure that? Because he loves you and because he loves me. That's the God we serve. May we never, ever let that grow light. May we never take that for granted. Then they said to him, Hail, King of the Jews. The Romans hated the Jews and they mocked Jesus as their king. And the Jews mocked Jesus for claiming to be a prophet and the Gentiles mock him for claiming to be a king. He was mocked by everyone. And yet he continued to suffer on our behalf. He continued to have his face set toward the cross because he knew 
that he was going there for you and for me. And that if he didn't go there, you and I could never have eternal life or forgiveness for sin. Because he loved us, he took all of it. And then it says they struck him with their hands. And we know from the other text, they put a, a cloth over his head and they came up and they, they hit him and said, prophesy who's hitting you. And it says in the text, in the, in the original language, that they kept beating him and kept beating him and kept beating him and kept beating him. In Isaiah 52, it says that he was beaten beyond recognition. He was marred more than any other man, that you could not even recognize him when they were done beating our Savior. And they did that to him. And he endured it because he loves you. Next time someone tells you you're of no value, just remember that value is determined by what someone's willing to pay for you or to pay for something. How much was paid for you? This much. Amen? Next time you think you're not worth anything, next time the world tries to tell you you're of no value, just remember how much Jesus, the Son of the living God, loves you and what price he paid for you. You are so valuable to him. He loves you so very much. And so they struck him with their hands and they marred him and they mocked him. And then verse 4. And then Pilate then went out again and said to them, Behold, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no fault in him. It's amazing. They scourged him, but he found no fault in him. He had done nothing wrong, but he let him be beaten. Why? Because he was worried about being pleasing before the people. He wanted to make the people happy, so he went ahead and had Jesus scourged. And then they let him mock him because he wanted to make the people happy. But then he comes out and says, I find no fault in him. Verse 5. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to him, them, Behold the man. It's interesting because as Jesus stood there, his body would have been ripped open, that robe on his back, him probably close to collapsing from what had happened to him. The crown of thorns in his head, blood running down his face. His face beaten beyond recognition. And he says, behold the man. And he says it in a sense of saying, look at this poor man. Hasn't he suffered enough? Why don't we just let him go? Pilate, again, seems like a a man who, oh, he's just an innocent bystander. But we're going to see that he makes a decision about Jesus. Because it wasn't Jesus who was on trial, it was Pilate. And Pilate has an opportunity here to, I find no fault in him. But yet, he's still going to go through with it. Now, I want to I say this. There's a valuable lesson here. Human sentiment is not what brings people to salvation. Just having pity on what Jesus did for us is not enough. You can talk about the, the, the cross in detail, and an unbeliever will weep. But it's not enough just to have pity for what Christ did. We should be broken over what Christ did for us. Amen? It should bring us to tears, but that's not enough. We need to more than just know that what, why he did it, or what he did, but why he had to do it. Amen? That we are sinners in desperate need of a Savior, and we have to see that our sin, and without conviction there can be no conversion. And until we say, Lord, I'm desperate for you, and Lord, you did this for me, until then, I will never be saved. You know what? These people didn't get saved. They didn't have pity for the Savior and caused them all to repent. If it didn't bring them to repentance 2,000 years ago, seeing a Jewish man being beaten by Roman soldiers and they were Jews, if that didn't turn their heart, then it's not going to turn the hearts of men today just to see what Jesus went through. They must see why he went through it. Amen? He went through the cross out of his love for us and to pay the price that you and I couldn't pay. Verse 6. Therefore, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, you take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. 
You know, here we see again these religious hypocrites. That's what they were. When Jesus, what did Jesus call them? You brood of vipers. You bunch of snakes. You walk around wearing the religious clothing and you have no idea who God is. You, you chase to and far, ser- searching for one disciple, and then you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are yourselves. That's Jesus' words, not mine. Because they were religious on the outside, but had no relationship with God. And, he was, and here we see their true colors. As soon as Jesus comes out, they just begin to shout, Crucify Him! They hate Jesus. Why do they hate Him? Because they're sinners, because they're convicted by His presence, and because they are on the throne right now of the religious system, and they don't want to give it up to anybody. You know why people don't get saved today? We don't want to leave the throne. We don't want Jesus on the throne. I'm on the throne. Nobody tells me what to do. I live my own life. Nobody tell me nothing. How's that working out for you? Doing things your way is not the answer. God is a loving and gracious and a merciful God and only through true repentance can we see a transformed life and they wanted Jesus dead and there was anger and and Pilate again can find no fault in him. You know, it's interesting that when you do a resume, you put a couple references on there, right? But don't you typically try to go find the best people to be your references? People that really like you? You call them up, are you sure? You like me, right? Okay. Could you be my reference? You know what's interesting here? Pilate's going to send Jesus to the cross, and he's a reference for our Savior because he says, I find no fault in him. Judas, who betrayed Jesus, would later say, I have betrayed innocent blood. Jesus' two greatest enemies on the way to the cross, those who condemned him and betrayed him, were testimonies of him. His two greatest enemies. They could find no fault in him because there was no fault in him. Amen? That's our Savior. He's perfect. And even those who sent him to the cross had nothing they could say. Even Judas who betrayed him would later say, I have betrayed innocent blood. And so we see here that, that Pilate doesn't know what he said. I found no fault in him. Verse 7, the Jews answered and said, we have a law. And according to our law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. Anybody tells you that Jesus never claimed to be God, take him to this verse and I'll give you a list of 500 others after service. He claims to be God all over the place because he is God. What did they put? What did they want to crucify him for? For saying he's the Son of God. Who is he? Son of God. So all he did was say, he told them who he was, and they wanted to kill him. And so they said, we have, we have a, a law that we've got to kill him because he claims to be exactly who he says he is. Verse 8. Therefore, when Pilate heard it, he was even more afraid. Wait a minute. I knew this guy was an innocent man, but now you're telling me that he's proclaiming himself to be God? Are you telling me that I've had God scourged and I've had God beaten and God was mocked? Well, well, wait a minute. uh, And do you know, right about this time, his wife, it says in Luke, his wife showed up and said, hey, Pilate, I had a dream about this guy. You better leave this Jesus alone. So Pilate's like, well, wait a minute. So he's done nothing wrong and and now he's claiming to be God. And I I had him mocked. Oh, but the people, if I don't do what they want, then I'm gonna, not going to be the governor anymore. And I have a decision to make. Who's on trial? Pilate. It's not Jesus. It's Pilate. Pilate, what are you going to do with Jesus? Church, what are you going to do with Jesus? 
Every one of you here, what are you going to do with Jesus? And that's where he's at. And Pilate's got a decision to make. Verse 8 or 9. And went again into the praetorium and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Pilate goes in and, wait a minute, they're, they're saying he's, go- where are you from? Jesus' claims of deity caused Pilate to look even deeper into the person of Christ. And Jesus did not answer. He did not answer because he had already answered the question before when he said, my kingdom is not of this world. He had already told him where he was from. And he already told him where he was going. He already told him where his kingdom was. We're almost done. So then he says in verse 10, Then Pilate said to him, Are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? Jesus, do you have any idea who you're talking to? Hey, Pilate, do you have any idea who you're talking to? Who's on trial? Pilate. He looks at Jesus and says, You're not answering me? Don't you know I have the power to crucify you and to let you go? I'm thinking the Lord could have been sitting there thinking, you know, Pilate, I have the power to turn you into a a box of rocks right now. Pilate, I could cast you halfway around the globe. I could turn you into a pile of dust. Pilate's angry and lashing out at our Savior. Like a lamb led to slaughter, as it says in prophecy, he opened on his mouth. Jesus said nothing. He said nothing because he knew Pilate's heart. Do you have any idea who you're talking to? Verse 11, Jesus answered, and I love this. He doesn't answer the, the question he has. He doesn't respond when he says to him, where are you from? Instead, when he says to him, I've got power to crucify you, Jesus is going to point him to the Father, which is what he always did. He said, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has greater sin. He says, hey, Pilate, you know this job you're hanging on to? My father put you there. And you know what, Pilate? You won't have that job one second longer than my father wants you to. And that's a good lesson for all of us, amen? We need to understand that whatever job, whatever position, whatever wealth, whatever we have, our families, everything, God gave it to us and it's all His. Amen? My children are the Lord's. My house is the Lord's. Everything I have belongs to Him. And when we understand that, we don't have to hold so tight because it's in God's hands. And He takes better care of stuff than I do. Amen? Trust Him. And so he says here, look, you wouldn't have any power unless my Father gave it to you. God is in control at all times. You think you're going to send me to the cross? You're not sending me anywhere unless that's where the Father wants me to be. Your boss can't fire you unless God wants you fired. You can't lose your job. You can't lose your health. You can't, I got cancer. I got, look, God's in control. We can trust Him. He's sovereign. He's faithful. Don't worry. No fear for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know, one who's delivered me to you is more guilty. That could either be Judas who betrayed him. It could even be Caiaphas who brought him directly to the Savior. So now Pilate has a dilemma. Look, from then on, Pilate sought to release him. It's like, man, this guy, I've never heard anybody talk this way. I've had him skirt. He's done nothing wrong. Now he's telling me the power that I have came from heaven. And I don't know what to do with this Jesus. Pilate's on trial. He's in a dilemma. There's a fork in the road. What are you going to do? It even says it in the original language that he kept trying to release him. But look at the Jews. But the Jews cried out and said, If you let this man go, you're not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. We're going to tell. <laughs> Telling on you, right? If you let him go, you're not Caesar's friend. 
You're already in trouble with Caesar, and we know it. And if we run and tell him, you will lose your job, man. You'll be out. You're going to be in the street. You better do what we say. Pilate, but he's innocent, but I don't know what to do. I mean, he's at that place. What do I do with Jesus? Pilate's on trial. What are you going to do with Jesus? And so here's Pilate's response. When Pilate therefore heard the saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that it called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. So he sat in the place of judgment. It says in Matthew 27 that he washed his hands before the crowd. He went out and washed his hands to say, I'm washing my hands of this whole thing. I'm not taking any responsibility. Hey, just like when you send him to Herod, you cannot pass the buck when it comes to Jesus. No decision is a decision when it comes to Jesus Christ. Amen? You're either for me or you're against me. And so he washes his hands and he's, oh, I'm not going to do anything about this. In the fear of disloyalty to Rome, he then says in verse 14, now it was a preparation day of Passover and about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. And spoken again to annoy, and this time to provoke the Jews. At this point, he was basically giving up. He was giving him over to be crucified. He was riling up the crowd one more time. And they cried out and said, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest said, We have no king but Caesar. These are the chief priests of what? Of Israel. And they say, we have no king but Caesar. Not a truer statement could have come out of their mouths. They don't serve the king of kings and the lord of lords. They don't know the true and living God. They've got the black robes, but they don't know him. And we have no king but Caesar. Last verse. Then they delivered him to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and led him away. Pilate's on trial. What did he ultimately decide to do with Jesus? Sent him to the cross. Pilate was convicted. Pilate knew there was no fault in him. Pilate knew that everything Jesus said was true. Pilate's own wife had a warning for him. By the way, according to some uh, first century writers, Pilate's wife got saved. And Pilate went and committed suicide not long from this. After he did lose his position anyway that he tried to hold on to. But he had to deal with Jesus first. And he made a decision to reject him and to deny him. Man's rejection of God. When Israel asked for a king, God gave them Saul. They rejected God the Father. When they asked for Barabbas, they rejected the Son. And today, people reject the pleading of the Holy Spirit. If you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord, God brought you here by divine appointment and nothing happens by chance in the kingdom of God. Amen? And He loves you this much but you have to make a decision what are you going to do with jesus who's on trial Pilate heard his words had witnessed his character had been warned by his wife had found no fault in him was convicted even by the spirit but he tried to remain neutral he sent jesus to herod he attempted to please men he delivered jesus to be to be uh, scourged in hopes of getting pity from the crowd he bowed to the peer pressure ultimately and denied the lord what about the crowd? They chose a murderer and a robber over the Savior. You know what? We're Barabbas. Jesus took our place. He took your place. What are you going to do with Jesus? Who's on trial this morning? We are. What are we going to do with Jesus? Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the most awesome exhibition of love in the history of all mankind and why we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, you were beaten and you were mocked and you were scourged. They tormented you. They beat you to where where you were not even recognizable anymore. And then, Lord, you went to the cross, as we're going to see next week. But, Father, I just thank you for sending your Son. I thank you, Lord, that you've suffered and died that we might have eternal life. And, Lord, I pray if there's even one person here this morning that does not know you, that, Father God, they would not leave here without you. Lord, they've heard your word this morning. I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, that their hearts and their would be softened to you. And they would not respond the way Pilate did in rejecting you. But Lord, they would respond the way that that so many millions of others have and say, Lord, I need you. I need you to be my Savior. Thank you for dying for me. Real quickly, with every head bowed, if you know the Lord, just be praying for those who don't. If you're here this morning and you've never given your life to the Lord, you know that you're a sinner and you're in need of a Savior, I'm just going to ask you to do something real simple in just a moment, just to raise your hand. I'm going to pray a simple prayer with you. And the prayer is just going to be, yes, I know that I'm a sinner and I want Jesus to be my Savior. And the Bible says when you pray that prayer, all the angels in heaven will rejoice. Your name will be written in the Lamb's book of life and the Spirit of the living God will come to live inside of you. And you'll finally understand what life's all about. And so, what are you going to do with Jesus? Is there anybody here at all? Say, I want to give my life to the Lord. I want to know for sure that I'm going to heaven. I want you to just raise your hand so I can pray with you. Is there anybody here at all? God bless you. Anybody else? Anybody else? Praise the Lord. Anybody else? Everybody pray with me, with the person who raised their hand. Let's all pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, I come to you this morning, and I confess that I'm a sinner. I ask you to forgive me for my sins. Thank you for sending your Son. Thank you for his death on the cross, for taking my place. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Help me to walk with you. Thank you again for making me your son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. All right. Let's stand and close the worship song.